Hello there. Glad to have you with us on today's podcast. We talk with Carolyn Townsend, who is the leader of a new effort in Nova Scotia called the Future of Hockey Lab. And so we wanted to talk to Carolyn because, of course, this lab is very exciting. But also, Carolyn worked with us years ago inside another big project called ReSport, where we were looking to shift the sports system in Nova Scotia to be more accessible, to be more responsive, to actually create justice across the province. And that's where Carolyn, Tim, and I got our start together, really impactful work for all three of us. And so we talk about that a little bit. We talk about making change, some of the challenges that we're up against. And then we get to hear a little bit about this future of Hockey Lab, which is absolutely running prototypes to begin to change the larger hockey system, which I don't know, I'm not Canadian, but I hear hockey is pretty important in Canada. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, there's a soccer revolution happening Tuesday. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. That's right. And it was brilliant to have Carolyn on. And we do. We dive deep into kind of very local context. And then we extrapolate far bigger reflections from that point. So just really enjoy coming along with us on this journey of conversation over the next 45 minutes to an hour where we get very local and we get very global in our thinking. So I think you're really enjoying it. Take care, friends. Carolyn, thank you for joining us on the podcast. We have a long-standing friendship and relationship and work relationship, I think, that goes back how many years now, is it? Well, actually, I was going to ask you guys that because I always think of the beginning of my journey as beginning working with you, and I, I don't have the year, so I, we'll have to go back and look right. at that. It was before we started The Outside. Right, right, so it's been more than three and a half years. I think it's about five, six years that we've been kind of like in each other's lives in varying different degrees in terms of support or working really closely together. I think we're knocking on that. And so it's just brilliant to have you on the pod with us. And we're going to spend a bit of time kind of like retrospectively looking back on the kind of influences we've had on each other, but also doing a bit of sharing and comparing notes on kind of where we're at and the current things we're working on and what we're learning at the moment. So thank you for coming on because I understand you are either right in the middle of or have just finished the kickoff retreat for one of your pieces of work. I have, and I miss you guys so much. I do. (laughs) I've been looking forward to this just because I get to hang out with you guys for a little bit. It was kind of thrilling to see like my calendar today. It's like, oh, we're going to hang out with Carolyn today. So I think this is great. You know, listeners, we'll do our best. You know, this is obviously a longstanding friendship and relationship. So we'll do our best to avoid what we call inside baseball, you know, inside jokes that people don't understand or, but we have, I hope the friendship of the interview today also comes through because I think that that's quite important uh, to all of our work. And of course, we talk about relationship in our work all of the time, but this is a, a little peek inside with you that someone we've had a long-term relationship with, done work with, then kind of moved out of work, but continued kind of learning together. And so I think it'll be great for folks to have a little peek inside. And now I'm a little baby trying to like sprout my wings and do the same work. Mm -hmm. Mm. Exactly. So cool. Well, look, I've just come off the second weekend here in Mahone Bay, Mahone Bay United Winter Soccer. And so we have over 155 kids participating in the soccer We have 17 different coaches and we have two different locations and not a single kid is paying a penny to participate. In fact, we remove all obstacles to participation, include providing shoes and kit and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I can trace that. I can trace a direct line back to the work we did together. The fact I ended up doing that in my community. I mean, the work we did together are about really trying to open up the sports system in Nova Scotia so it could be more accessible right, to the diversity of young people and people that live in Nova Scotia has in an incredible way given 
gave me, still gives me, an avenue to participate in my community. You know, one doing something I love in a way that I love. And I was just texting with Katie last night after we got through another the second day of, I mean, the program's doubled in size every single year we've been doing it. We're into the third year now of doing it officially. And so it's, I was like, I don't know what it is about this whole soccer thing, but it makes me feel really happy. Mm. You know, mm. like I get to the end of Sundays and I see all the pictures coming in and the parents texting me and the kids having a brilliant time. I just get this. It's not even satisfaction. It's just like genuine happiness, you know? And so I think for me to say that what we did together has influenced me would be just a huge understatement. It's it's given me an avenue to turn up and contribute to my community, you know, and a foundation to do that. So I think this starts off with a thank you, Mm. you know, for that work we did together. And I just love, you know, as you reflect back on that, like what comes up for you, Carolyn? Yeah, I remember that. I remember when you got the idea and I remember when you first started sharing it and started asking around and had your first gatherings. I got it. Like, I don't mean to get right into it because I know there's probably Let's a ramp and I'm probably racing ahead, but Mm-mm. I got to say that and not to minimize what you're doing in any way because it's beautiful, but there are actually a lot of those examples across not only Nova Scotia, but the country everywhere. And Absolutely. What I worry about is that they constantly butt up at least in this province anyway, I can't think of any examples where it actually integrates with the existing system. Like Mm. they're they're always one-offs. They're always kind of on their own and they're beautiful and they have these amazing outcomes and these amazing experiences and they're different and they're unique and they're game-changing and challenging in terms of like systems challenging. And then they just stay isolated. And so for the most part, like pretty much exclusively. And so sometimes I get a little bit like, get a little bit of worry. It's like this stuff is happening and yet it's not impacting this bigger power system, at least in this province anyway. I mean, I think that that's likely, I feel like that what you just said, like these kind of small experiments or small places of innovation or like just small places of like getting it done often are outside of the larger system which is not made for that kind of nimbleness, for that kind of community responsiveness, for that kind of kind of ingenuity on a local level, right? We keep looking to these big systems. I'm thinking we have an outsider in Glasgow, Brona. Do you know Brona, Carolyn? I remember you speaking about her. Yeah. Okay. So Brono is in Glasgow, right? And so the COP was just there. And, you know, obviously the big change didn't happen from it that folks had hoped for. And she was really philosophical. She was just like, it was always going to be local. That was always going to be in Glasgow. We always knew after everybody left, we still had the things we needed to do here for our community. And so I'm really curious. It feels like big systems. I guess what I'm trying to say is it doesn't feel like an accident that these smaller pockets aren't influencing the larger system or aren't picked up by the larger system or aren't even recognized by the larger system. It's like by virtue of its design, like we marginalize these different ways of being in community. And I think for me, that's one of the things that we're trying to solve at the outside. How do we actually get some kind of interface between a large system that can be informed and informing, right? Some of these small experiments or small successes, even if we just not even experiments, because there's something that the system can do that we can't do if we remain isolated, but there's something that these isolated successes need to inform the larger system to actually make broader impact. And so I think for me, that's one of the questions at the heart of our work is how do we begin to connect these up? Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about the summit in Glasgow because I listened to a CBC interview when that was going on and I'm 
a minute to look the gentleman's name up, but there was an indigenous leader. In fact, I think he was a chief and it was somewhere very north. I'm going to say Northwest Territories or maybe Northern Saskatchewan, where he was from. And he's historically gone to that event and historically been quite a strong voice at that event. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard that interview or not, but he Mm -mm. made the decision this year to not attend. And it wasn't COVID related. It was his decision was based on the fact that he thinks that the best impact that he can make is at that local level. Like he feels that his time is best spent with his own community and the people mm. people nearest him in terms of making an impact on the environment. And so I guess what it makes me think is that it, it really does take all those levels. Like you could have, you know, 10 programs all across this province that are just gangbusters. But unless you have somebody that's operating at the policy level or, or sort of trying mm-hmm. to implement change at the policy level and trying to deal with the power in the system one way or another, or trying to intervene at, at all those levels, I don't know if it can go anywhere. Yeah. It's interesting for me. The idea from a Home Bay United came directly from stories when we were doing resport of people creating free access to ice in Nova Scotia. So that, you know, and, and of course, hockey is one of the most exclusive sports you can have it. It's going to largely target white, middle to upper middle class kids because it's so expensive to play. You know, yeah, it is. It's the aspirational sport so often in our communities, but it's fundamentally inaccessible. And so we just kind of went for it. And what we've ended up deciding to do in this kind of specific example is actually deliberately avoid the dominant system. We've deliberately said we're not going to go to soccer Nova Scotia. We're not going to get involved in any of that. We don't like the sound of it. We don't like how we're treated when we engage with them. We're not even asking the government for any money. All the money has come from local businesses and individuals, right, to run the program, to operate it. And even now, when we're getting requests from families and kids to put out competitive teams, we're not even considering putting our teams into the dominant system. We're like, oh, well, let's start our own league. I know what we'll do. We'll challenge other clubs and we'll run tournaments. You know, um, just as I hear the two of you mm-hmm. talk, and I know I started with that concrete example of like, actually, like our little board and our coach, you know, the 17 coaches when we sit around, there's zero desire to mm-hmm. contribute to the way things are currently being done. You know, one, because we feel there's plenty of options for kids who want to go that route. They can just go sign up to one of the local, local clubs and they're off to the races, you know. I think there is a decision making. And of course, as both of you know, the basic theory of change that the outside operates from, and probably by virtue you're referencing at least, Carolyn, is that if we don't connect together these local actions, you don't actually get systems change. What you get is a very isolated piece of local change that will often burn out because of how brightly you have to burn as the individuals Mm -hmm. who are running it to keep it going. Mm You know, and so we're talking about that at Mahone Bay United. We're talking about how does this not end up being completely dependent on Tim and how do we distribute the work and all that kind of stuff, you know, but uh, it's a huge risk, you know. So I think this question of like, well, how do we connect together the dots? And I think ReSport was an attempt to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that work we did together mm-hmm. over two years in Nova Scotia was deliberately set up to identify and connect people who were breaking the mold in terms of how sport was delivered across the province and making it more accessible, trying to connect them together and generate data that could make a case to power brokers, you know? And that work continues with some of the people we worked with. And Hockey Lab is now underway and has been informed by that. And Mahone Bay United started as a result of that. And I just wonder, 
I just genuinely found myself wondering as the two of you were talking, how much of this stuff follows theory, you know, or whether actually something organically happens mm. anyway, you know, and, and it's kind of like, well, my home Bay United wouldn't have started if I hadn't heard about those free ice things and hockey lab probably wouldn't be underway if you and Amy hadn't been involved in that work with us. Like, is there something actually at play that needs our attention in terms of amplifying and accelerating it, right? I don't know. Do you see where I'm going? I just wonder if there is something actually that's like different than our ideas or whatever it should be or whatever it might be, and which is not in any way to dismiss the need for senior leadership engagement. And, and certainly Tuesday and I, it's a huge part of our work and it's been a massive learning for us. I just wonder if there isn't a strategy already afoot and here we are trying to make mm-hmm. one up, you know, <laughs> and maybe it's about like turning up the volume on the strategy that's already underway, connecting together the people who are already doing it. Well, so a couple of thoughts. First of all, it was interesting when you said about connecting in with the dominant system and the lack of interest in doing that and kind of the feeling that it generates. But what amazes me because I've, you know, I spent 10 years as part of that dominant system is that by and large, like by and large, those people that work in that system are really good, well-meaning yeah. people who yeah. are kind of stuck and recognize that they're in a system that's, you know, pretty much dysfunctional and recognize that, you know, they're not set up for success and, and really want to do good work. So that that's an interesting thing, right? Is because it's not like there's, you know, a bunch of bad people over here that are holding right. this dominant system. Right. There's all exactly. people over here that are trying to change it. It's like there's really good people mm-hmm. who are hungry for change, but they're just spinning their wheels. So that's one thing that came to mind. And then the other thing I think that's really accelerated this, and by the way, you mentioned two years for Resport, but I would expand that to four actually, because we yeah. we had a, quite an on-ramp before we even got to Resport. Yeah. But I would say one of the things that's changed from then to now, which is, I think, you know, kind of in a twisted way been really helpful is just the time that we're in right now mm-hmm. and like a really elevated desire to change, you know, an elevated desire and an elevated openness to change that I think we were just kind of pulling at the margins a little bit when we first started. And then a whole bunch of stuff happened in our world between then and now. And it's just like, I feel like it's just, I'm sure you felt it in your work, like it's just exploded and it's terrible why it exploded. But like, I always thank, we should, in hockey anyway, we should thank Don Cherry, right? Like I, I was never a particular fan. But he had those statements that he made or that statement that he made. It was November of 2019. And he made those really ignorant comments. But what happened was he got fired. And it was when he got fired that a lot of people were like, oh, Don Cherry, who's like one of the main figureheads in hockey, got fired because he spoke like that. Well, that must mean that it's okay to to say, you know, what I've been going through to share my story or to like be finally open. And so all these stories started emerging in hockey everywhere. Stories of discrimination and stories of racism and, you know, negative experiences. And I'm smiling as I say that, and I shouldn't be, but the reason why I'm is because it it made it okay to like finally talk about this stuff. And it's not until you can talk about it that you can actually do something about it. And so it just kind of, thank you, Don Cherry, for like opening up this floodgates. That's how it feels on my end anyway. I really appreciate, Carolyn, just a number of things you said, but one of the things just to highlight is how many good people are in broken systems. 
And I think that that's true and it's reality of every broken system I've ever worked in, right? That there are really good people and they're doing the best they can, seeing the brokenness and trying anyway. And like, there's something actually quite nice and noble about that particular piece too. So often, like, I feel like, you know, that on our two loose model, the trailblazers that, you know, they get all the kind of the glory or they kind of think they're great, but there are all of these people in the current system. And I think we found that to be true. And I actually think this is one of the places where, why the outside is uniquely positioned. I think we work with people in broken systems who want change all the time, which is very different from being outside of the system saying you need to change or outside of the system saying we're going to create something different. I think being inside the system with people who know the system who wanted to change is a really powerful position. And I just really appreciate your kind of like a nod to those particular people. I don't know. There's so much chaos and so much crisis and so much hurt and pain right now, for sure, that it's really hard to get that perspective, I think that you just said, but I don't have any doubt we're going to look back at this time as like making possible things we could never have imagined. Right. I think that that is true. I was just listening to someone this morning. It was saying, you know, just for the U.S. context, if Hillary had become president, would the Me Too movement have taken off in the way that it had? Would sport, right? Because when you go to hockey, I go right to gymnastics because that's my sport, right? Like, And all these allegations of abuse, two gymnasts stepping out of the Olympic Games and saying, no, I won't do this to my body. It's just like, it feels like there are all of these huge ripple effects. And again, nobody's saying that it's, you know, 500,000 COVID deaths are worth it in this country, right? It's not that. It's not about being worth it or not worth it. It's actually about seeing what it makes possible because that's where we are. Now things are possible that weren't before. They just are. How do the two of you reconcile? Because this is, I mean, it's just like, this is something I'm personally struggling with. So how do you reconcile the incredibly hopeful actions I see day in, day out of individuals, organizers within communities or within institutions who are saying, I'm going to do something different. Tuesday in the large institutions we work in, we often encounter people, they're choosing to do something different. Mm -hmm within a context that is not supportive, but they're reorganizing and reorienting within their sphere of control. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, how do you reconcile that with what often continues to feel like a most senior level of leadership, right? That isn't making those kinds Mm -hmm. of shifts. So, you know, the most recent COP would be another example. I think there's a significant lack of political will in many provinces across Canada to really tackle some of the major issues we're facing, both societal issues, environmental issues, financial issues that we're facing. And so I just, how do the two of you reconcile that? I mean, all of us in our own ways are organizers right? Whether we're the outside and we're organizing within these very large institutions to try and like turn these these ships over time and generate the data from the work you're doing around sport to the work I'm just doing in my own little hometown, you know? And so I struggle with reconciling that. I struggle with reconciling the kind of hope I found in individuals and small groups and then what I encounter when I read the papers and what I encounter when I look at the trajectory that our decision makers seem to be on at the highest levels of decision-making in our provinces, nations, internationally. Yeah, I struggle with that as well. I deeply struggle with that. And I did when we were working together as well. So in the future of Hockey Lab, we have a really good, a really amazing, actually, board of mentors. And one of the people is called Justin Bob, and he works with MLSE. And we were on the phone with him a couple of weeks ago, and we were having this very conversation, and we were just feeling really kind of 
I don't know, David and Goliath is such an overused expression, but I can't think of anything better in the moment we were feeling so, so David at the time. And he said that he had been, he's sort of shaped an indigenous circle in his province and in his community. And one of the things that he had learned in a recent circle was that it takes, and he had learned this from the indigenous people involved, was that it takes seven generations for change to happen. And so I think he was trying to make me feel better when he said that, but like, I just turned 50 on Friday and I'm like, I just started this work when I met you and I'm panicked because mm. I don't want to work till I'm 90 or, you know, I don't even know if I'm going to live till I'm 90. And I'm like, there's so much that we have to do. And there's such a huge hill to climb. And I have so little time to try to make an impact. I mean, I struggle with this every single day. I don't do a very good job of reconciling it. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like you just named a struggle, Tim. I don't know that there's a, it's like kind of like a. Come on, you two must have answers. <laughs> you know, what is this? I, <laughs> you think I come on this podcast to be told there's no one? Come on. For the listen, do it for the listeners. Tell That's us. Right. Okay. Here's the answer. Here is how you reconcile it. Here we go. I do feel like, you know, we talk about with the chaotic path or these tensions, like there's actually about living in the tension rather than resolving it. And I think that that's like, I wonder, so this, I'm not going to state this as a, but I do, I always wonder, and I bring this to you all the time, Tim, I wonder what is the difference around our places in society? So for example, I think that my grandparents had it a lot worse than I do related to race. And so there is an arc I can see that I think leaves me more hopeful than coming to a realization around inequity or hard things for folks, right? I feel like my ancestors, as, as soon as we came to these shores, have been in really terrible situations, have been making do without anything, have been just working for a future they know they may not see, which feels quite different than somehow being upset or surprised at the status of things, right? I mean, I was horrified that Kyle Rittenhouse got off after killing those people at a Black Lives Matter rally. Mm. It's a 17-year-old that took an AK-47, right? I was horrified. I was hurting. I was scared, but I wasn't like, there was no surprise and it didn't dim my hope in any way. I don't know. I want, I'm curious about having a marginalized community and having to hold that tension all of the time, like knowing your leaders aren't for you because they've never been for you and still doing what you have to do. I don't want to make that as a blanket statement, but I have a curiosity around like how that particularly works. And then the other thing, just to the both of you, and maybe you feel this too, like, I feel like I work with really good people every day. All the time. So like, I hear this and it's part of it, like comes in quite jarring. It's like- I think that's what's irreconcilable it's for like, me. That's not where my yeah. life is. That's not what I'm seeing. Every day I'm working with you. I'm working with Carolyn. I'm working with people who are like actively trying to make the world better. And so, you know, that Byron Katie thing where you turn it around and, you know, like you say, find an example that's truer, truer. So for every example of like, we're going to hell and it's all going down, I can find three examples that are truer, truer than that in my everyday life. I don't know if that's helpful. I mean, like truly the Rittenhouse verdict, I just was like, I just went off media and I was like, and he didn't kill black people, but it was still like, you can do that. You can, in America, what we have said right now is white supremacy gets to kill people. 
that's what we have said. But we've said that for 400 plus years. That's actually not a new message. It's not exactly breaking news, is it? No, no. You know, Tuesday, you hit on something that just gave me an aha moment, though, because so we just came off the first weekend. We just launched the future. Well, the future Parker lab launched a few months ago, but we just had the kickoff weekend Mm. of the very first cohort. And it's funny because I've had this feeling of uneasiness. Like I should be like feeling really great because this amazing group and we, you know, we designed this great weekend and we had success and that we came out of the weekend with all these great go forwards and, you know, bang, 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 you know, for right. all, on all accounts, I should be thrilled. And I, I feel this thing and I put a finger on it. And I think what you just said allowed me to name it. And it's that it's hope. Because I'm nervous that all the people in that room, there was 20 participants, so 25 of us roughly in total, including the facilitation team and the planning team. So, you know, Mm. I guess as facilitators, we have a certain responsibility to like make sure that the people who are participating in the lab feel supported and feel like their efforts are not all for naught and that this is moving forward and that there's progress. And so there was this incredible feeling of hope when, mm. we, when we left. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it is, is I'm like, I, ha- I feel this responsibility a little bit as a caretaker of that hope, you know? And, and I know it's not, that that's not exactly right, but I do, I feel that everybody around that table really wants change, mm. like desperately. Mm-hmm. And so is this the right format, you know, what happens if it's not, are these, all of us going to be let down again, you know, is mm-hmm. this just going to be another example of that pattern and i and i'll just add that i feel that sometimes and i feel like i'm being really negative but i feel that sometimes like in hockey when i go to a rink mm-hmm. it isn't very often but when i do i don't play hockey i'm not a hockey person but when i go when i do go to a rink if one of my kids is playing or something and i see the kind of behavior around me mm. i always leave that rink feeling like oh god like how could we ever get anywhere with this when that is what we're battling you know but then I go into a room like we had on the weekend and I think, hell yeah, like hell yeah. <laughs> I just don't think you can underestimate the power of optimism, you know, and in lots of ways, you know, just as a, just like, I mean, I think optimism is one of the primary ways I survived my own trauma, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just personally, mm-hmm. you know, just like, I don't have a better word for it than that. You know, optimism combined with perseverance, or we, we talked about some different stuff this morning, choose, mm-hmm. but like, I think there is something about what optimism can give you, you know, personally, I don't feel like I have to go far to find optimism. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go far inside myself. I don't have to go far in my relationships, you know, and I don't think it's always been like that. I think there were very long periods of my life where actually I couldn't find optimism anywhere around me, mm. you know, but somehow it lingered within me. You know, and, and choose, you know, you and I had a conversation with Margaret Wheatley and one of our podcasts around kind of hope and optimism. You know, remember there was a mm-hmm. kind of a, a, mm-hmm. this framing around hope and hopelessness versus optimism. And I just want to say that I actually feel like an essential ingredient of this work is optimism. I 1000%. Like core, core to it is, you know, because we talk about, like, you know, one of the taglines of the outside is a breath of fresh air. You know, but like that's what that fresh air is. It's optimism in the face of insurmountable odds, in the face of something completely impossible. What one of my, you know, unmet mentors will talk about is just a question of character. So, what if it's all going to shit? What are you going to do? You're going to stand around, stand aside and look? 
just because it's a lost cause? Well, no, that's just a question of character. You know, he refers to a lot of ancient myths. He's like, you know, and one of the oldest ones in England is Robin Hood. Goes back to night. Robin Hood didn't sit around and do nothing just because he was never going to defeat the sheriff of Nottingham. It was never going to happen, really, you know. (laughs) And like going back to the year 900, when when the stories of Robin Hood first started coming out, he was always going to lose. Right. He never thought it was a battle he was going to win. Right, exactly. But that did not stop him acting because it was a question of character, you know. And, and I just think there's something in that. Right? Tuesday, I think that's where he really got that coat was from Robin Hood. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I like it, Tim. I'm going to start to like try to like put your clothes in the kind of the mythical age that they belong. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But I love that, Tim. I feel like that is exactly what I'm talking about. Like 1000% optimism and don't even try to take my hope because then I'm because then actually you have no credibility with me. If you're going to try to take my hope, like, I don't know, it's like, it feels in some ways, cynicism in that way feels self-indulgent to me. Now, I really appreciated what Meg was talking about. I don't actually think it has to be hope that we're going to change the whole system, right? But hope that we can do something, hope that turning to each other is the way to go. Hope that finding that kind of seed inside us that says, try something different is worth listening to. Right. So I just, there's something there. And I also, I just want to say, because I 100%, I think that that's what we bring. We bring optimism and hope and I'm not going to apologize for it. And I think actually that's a really great spiritual truth as well. But I also think that I don't really mind if that makes me incredibly vulnerable. I think it does make me incredibly vulnerable to hope for something like Carolyn, you're talking about coming out of this weekend, right? And some of it's like a little shakiness. We're doing something here. This is like this tender little bird that we need to protect, right? And that's really vulnerable. It's really vulnerable to hope for something like that, to take responsibility for it and to say, I'm going to try anyway. Like we can say vulnerable all the way up. We might be embarrassed if it doesn't work. We might let people down all the way up to our great leaders who have tried to make change are often killed. This huge, it's a huge vulnerability. And so I think there's something about maybe even seeing that vulnerability that you were saying is like a sign that we're on the right track, right? That we're actually doing something different, that we care about something enough to put ourselves a little bit on the line for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think we have no choice. Like, And, and I can't think of anything in the whole wide world I'd rather be doing mm. than in this battle. <laughs> Carolyn, when did it become choiceless for you? Mm. I think starting to work with you guys. I think probably it's always part of me, but it, you, the work mm. that I was able to do with you, I think just watered that seed. And yeah, I think I just started to recognize it then. So I'm just a baby. Like I'm just getting started. <laughs> it's not like a lifelong thing. Well, I'm curious, Carolyn, because I really appreciate that you're saying you're just like a baby just getting started. And I actually really appreciate (laughs) that analogy. And I was trying to take that analogy. I'm like, but Carolyn has something we've talked about this. Tim and I have talked about this. Carolyn has something that Tim and I don't have. And so I was like, is that a bait? Is that another arm on the baby? Nope, that doesn't work. Is that another outfit the baby wears? No. Okay. Maybe it's another outfit. I was trying. I was trying with this. You just, just because you like outfits, you know, come on. That's just because like you want to dress the baby. There's nothing to do with actually the real metaphor. Let's talk about shoes. What shoes is this? Right. Exactly. Exactly. There we go. Exactly. There we go. Thank you, Carolyn. Because I feel like you have an ability to articulate this work and the outcomes possible from this work that I think is uniquely yours and is quite spectacular. 
So yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take the baby Agreed. analogy, but I think you have a different outfit that I'd like to figure out how to put my baby in or something. I'm not sure, but I do think you have this ability to articulate toward outcome. That's really amazing. And I don't, I don't know what the question is there, but I kind of want you to talk about it. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I, I'm actually somewhat aware of that partly because you guys have been reminding me of that a lot, but I think it's something that comes from being fresh in this sort of fresh in this work in that I think that the longer you do this work, the more you get, like, I, I think I just have, I still have, and I'll, and I'll probably lose it after a while, but like just an outside perspective, mm. I think, right? Because it, it, it's been something that didn't start to become my life till we started working together. So, you know, we talked before we started recording about language and that's something that when we very first started, there was a gap between the language that the three of us would use and the language that everyone that we were working with would use. And so that's something that I'm trying to be careful about in the future of Pocky Lab is like, is it accessible? Like do people who are coming into the lab even understand what we're talking about and what we're trying to do? And I think that's a big thing actually in this work is that you can go down these, but you can get so into the work that you lose you lose perspective of what it feels like to not be in the, like, you know, people mm-hmm. who are fighting this fight, but not in the way that, that we are, don't talk like this or think like this or work like this. So right. those are the people that need to be engaged, in my opinion. Right. I mean, even on this pod, you two, we've referenced chaotic, which is essentially a, a model or theory of how to approach an organized change. That's a reference point for the three of us. Did you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like off, off the bat, we've mentioned that. And so I think we've, you know, even on this pod, and I can't think of any off the top of my head apart from that one, but I'm sure there's other things we've done that like, you know, even despite our attempt not to do inside baseball are reference points for us. There's shortcuts mm-hmm. in our language to point to things. Well, I mean, even the reference to my, my coat, you know, which is a very important piece of <laughs> equipment for social change. <laughs> You know, we're, talk- we're talking about a 1970s coat I bought in a market in Dusseldorf when I was 22 years old that I still wear. And so, you know, but there are, there's these, you know, the more you get into it, the more potentially you can get lost in your own field. Mm-hmm. Even the word dominant system and systems change, mm. like the three of us get that and we're on the same page and, and I'm sure all your listeners, everybody's gets it. Maybe. But then you, we go into our hockey lab on the weekend and talk about you know, how we're working alongside the dominant system and that we, you know, we're engaging power and that kind of language. And people are like, what? Eh? 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. One of the things we say all the time is equity. And people are like, are we talking about money? Are we, right. what is that word? What do you mean? You mean equality? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so the, Absolutely. I think the challenge for us is to like make the language evocative, right? And yet so accessible. Age old, we continue Seriously, to work. Do you remember when we first started working together and you used to talk about equity? And then I said, and I'm, I think I might have even acknowledged that this was something I'm not proud of, but I remember saying to you, Tuesday, I know equity is really important to you, but that, you know, that's not what we're really talking about here. What we're, you know, what we're talking about here is how more people can, you know, have access to this sports system, you know, so just kind of shelf that equity thing, please. And stop talking about that. (laughs) Right. Like, yeah, you know, I didn't know what, I didn't know that language. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And look, then look at you now. Right. (laughs) But yeah, that, I mean, and I think that, you know, just to say, Carolyn, like that often really happens. Like that is just so common. It's not even a thing. So part of it is my language and part of it is actually 
pulling in a concept that people need to be considering, even if they um, haven't. So both are absolutely true, but it's not uncommon. I didn't remember that, but. We actually have a document now in the outside called the Jargon Jukebox, and it's basically like a summary of a lot of the reference points that we might have, you know. And um, just to go full circle somewhat, like we're not talking about systems change at Mahone Bay United. Hmm. We're just talking about a no obstacles to access soccer club. Yeah. That's it. You know, that's all we're up to in, in some ways, you know. And like this kind of like, we don't want to go into the dominant system of soccer and competitive soccer and soccer Nova Scotia and sports Nova Scotia. It's not because they're bad. It's because we can't do what we want there. Mm. <laughs> we can't fulfill our mandate, our founding mandate in that context. So we have to go build our own. We have to go build our own context. And we have, and as we grow, we then have to build a bigger infrastructure that serves our growth. Right. And so when we get demand for competitive teams, it's like, oh, we're going to have to go build our own local league or we're going to have to do challenge games or we're going to have to run international tournaments and bring kids from different parts of the world to come and play here so our kids get an opportunity to play under the Mahone Bay United banner. You know, So it's interesting, isn't it, of like at what point does the kind of bigger picture language become helpful, mm-hmm. become useful? Mm-hmm. It's not useful. If I turned up into Mahone Bay United meetings of our board and our coaches and were like, this is about providing an alternative to the dominant system, you know, no one really cares. They just, everybody's, I mean, the reason people turn up is because it's free. We're providing something free to kids that is no obstacles to play. That's why coaches turn up and don't do it. Enthusiastic to give their time. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, there's no big theory behind it. At what point does it become helpful to have that bigger picture language, to have that? Yeah. And I totally agree with you that it's not helpful at the beginning. And I think once you bumble along for a while and build trust, then it's probably important at some point to introduce it. I think like what I'm seeing anywhere, what I'm, what I can see off in the future is that it's inevitable that the work goes to a place of conflict and I don't like that. And the people around the table don't like that. Like nobody likes that. But what I'm starting to recognize is that we're not actually going to be able to be successful unless that's where it ultimately leads. Mm. But so I think for me, it's more of a dance between like, at one point, do you start kind of naming that? Because it's going to be really hard to invite people into the work and to get trust going and collaboration going and optimism and, and hope and all the things that we just talked about and all the things that are so important. If people know that at the end of the day, it has to go that, you know, but then at the same time, you know, you don't want to hold back on that because it's a reality of the work. But I think what gets people like, engaged in the beginning is the fun collaborative stuff. And I'm already starting to see a time when I think you could bump along fun collaboratively for a very long time and not have any actual impact. Mm -hmm. And so, right. And so I think that if we're really wanting to squeeze out of this work, what we know we want to, then we need to be ready for a lot of friction. We're not there yet. Thank heavens. And hopefully we, you know, hopefully we'll have a good run for a year or two, maybe even three before we hit that. But we had one of the prototypes that we launched on the weekend was in a part of the province where hockey participation is declining everywhere across the country and, and in Nova Scotia is no difference. But there's one part of this province where it's declining. The drop is steeper and mm. the numbers are lower. And so we talked about the prototype was to 
it's kind of a long story, but we're to develop this little unique. So it's a, a black hockey program only for black people in a certain part of the province. But it's not just about hockey. It's about, you know, life skills and just being a good human. So um, and it's for families. It's like it's not just for kids. It's for families. And so we were getting kind of excited about this and building it out. And, you know, what does prototyping look like? And where are we ultimately going? All that kind of stuff that you taught us. And then I'm like, oh, my God, like if we could do this, like do a really good job of this for like, I don't know how long, but I'm going to say three years. That's probably insanely optimistic. Maybe that becomes the dominant system, you know, like maybe all the white people who are in the, you know, the wider hockey system in this part of the province actually come over to this program because it just looks so, you know, like, so I think about Mahone Bay, right? Like maybe the people in, in the Mahone Bay area who are registered in minors or whatever it's called, the soccer association in the area, you know what I'm trying to say? Like maybe there's like a leap over to what's, what's new. That's where the conflict starts to come in. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that you're right. And I think we try to say, you know, like we actually shouldn't agree. You know, we're not going to do anything new if we shouldn't agree. But when you get people who have started out optimistic, right, who want to kind of share work together, like there is a bit of a record scratch when the conflict comes in. Like, wait, what? Like we thought we were doing this thing together. And so I think the prototypes, well, what I like about prototyping is a, is a method. And I'm curious about the prototypes you all are launching is that it lets people do different things. Some of which might be in conflict with each other, might kind of have different theories of change or have different populations they're working with. And one of the things I'm thinking of, I keep thinking about in this conversation is a conversation on scaling. We think about scaling up. And so, and one of the things our kind of prototype team, Dr. Gabriel Donnelly and Brona talk about is like the different kinds of scaling. Like, so they're scaling up, of course, like making it bigger, amplifying, accelerating, making it, you know, maybe even take the place of the dominant system. There's also scaling across, right? Which is like keeping these things connected so they learn from each other. They're scaling deep, which they talk about changing culture, right? Which might be sort of part of what is you talk about this prototype, like what if hockey becomes about the family, about like human life skills and not just about this game, like that you actually begin to change the culture of something scaling deep or, and they also talk about scaling scree, which is like many, it's almost like a rock slide. Something happens and then a rock slide happens and then all sorts of things start to tumble and move. And so I just think in some ways, when we talk about systems change, we often get really confused that it has to be scaling up when it could be any of these different kinds of scaling to actually have real impact. And we don't know always the impact. I'm thinking about the ICRC, Tim, and recently I talked with someone from the International Committee of the Red Cross and she was like, oh my gosh, yes, it's happening here. It's happening here. It's happening here. Now senior leadership is talking about some of the things you were talking about, things that we just had no idea would happen. And so I'm, you know, kind of our, our fascination with scaling up, I think, keeps us from seeing all the different ways we're scaling and impacting. And so I, I love that choose. And I, I just feel like that is just, I just felt like you found a far better way of articulating something I was trying to find words for earlier in the pod of like, what if there's something organic happening that we need to figure out how to work with? You know what I mean? Like what your point, like these kind of like unintended outcomes of the work within ICRC that we're like, we never could have planned, but my goodness, they're impactful. Yeah. You know? And so I just really buy that. And, and also that like inevitably when we're launching these things that feel like they're groundbreaking, but they feel like they're counter to so much of what is being offered in the world. They're actually like with the soccer program we're doing, a good chunk of the kids who come to our soccer program go and play competitively for other clubs. Right. But they just like the game more. 
and they're better skilled at it. Mm. You know, we're actually, I truly believe we are improving all of the other teams in our area. Mm. The kids are turning up better trained at a younger age with a greater sense of love for the sport, you know, and that's improving Thunder, that's improving West Nova Fuels, that's improving South Shore United, like, because they're getting a whole bunch of kids coming in. The kind of more established system of soccer is fueled better because of what we're doing, (laughs) you know, in a really interesting way. So I think there are all of these kind of unintended consequences that happen as a result of a work that which I think is part of what Dr. Gabriel Donnelly and, and Broner and others on our kind of evaluation team are, are really like, how do we track mm-hmm. that? How do we start tracking this kind of em- the emergent quality of change so that we can follow where it wants to go rather than where we think it should go, you know? And I just think that's, a, I think that's when the kind of rigor of the data analysis and the data gathering becomes so important in this work where it isn't just about riding the wave of optimism. You know, it's actually about gathering the data that allows us to be strategic in response to what is emerging, what is happening anyway, you know? Yeah. You know, I miss working with you so much because you do, you too, too, but mostly, but mostly Tuesday, you, <laughs> you oh. do have a way. Fine. Whatever. Yeah. No, I'm not hurt. I'm not hurt. It's okay. <laughs> you do have a way of articulating things that just kind of like, yes, that, that's it. Yeah, that's right. It is. Totally. And, I, you know, this is why I've been saying to you guys, I, you know, I'm not really sure if like the whole idea of a learning institute, because I think the two of you and your team leave footprints wherever you go, you know, and those footprints, they're big. And I, I don't know if that's more impactful than leading the actual work is. Mm. Like, I mean, it, you know, I'm sure it'd be great to do both. But so, you know, even the work that we did together a few years ago, like I know people grew from that immensely. Mm-hmm. And I, you, you do hear that from other social innovation labs that the biggest impact isn't necessarily the prototypes, but it's how it changes the people that are engaged in the work and then creates another wave of humans who are now thinking that way and working that way and seeing that way. Like there's something really huge to be said for that. Like it's massive. And I, and I'm not surprised to hear you say that you're struggling with how to measure it because, oh my God, like, it's just like, yeah, it's so organic and it's so insidious. Like you don't even notice it's happening at the time. And then, you know, you look back at, you know, the way that you worked or the way that you processed thought or the way that you approached what you do six months ago versus the way you do it now having been exposed to these, this kind of thought leadership and it, it does, it makes a difference. And so I think there's something to be said for what you just articulated Tuesday is that it's, there's a whole other level to this. Mm. That's mm. hugely impactful. Deliciously insidious. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, but I know what you're pointing at. You're pointing at this kind of like the invisible movement, you know, almost like mycelium or something that's under the ground. You see the mushrooms pop up, but there's this whole network under the ground that's just growing and moving and doing all of this stuff. Yeah. And the timing, the timing, oh my God, the timing is like amazing. Like there's, I know there's people like me all over the place, but none of us have, we all like, I desperately would love to, you know, have guidance in this work. And so I'm just putting one foot in front of them. My motto after last weekend is I only need to stay one step ahead. I can, I don't think I have enough to be two or three steps ahead, but I just need to be one step ahead. 
but yeah, I miss working with you so much because you don't have, I don't have anyone to, to hold my hand and, um, I'm not sure you need it. Get it on. Look, <laughs> it's on, it's on, it's on and you're invited. Hey, listen, when we get towards the end of these pods, we'll often ask people like who else they think we should be inviting onto the pod. Mm. And, you know, whether it's in season four or season five, like, is there anyone in, in your work and your world that you think would be just like a rich and useful and beneficial person to have on the pod and be in conversation with, you know, from the, from the perspective of the outside or to feed into the outside? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you're going to laugh at two of my suggestions because I'm like, if you can get these people on your uh, podcast, it would be a feat. But like Ibram X. Kendi would be amazing. I know, go big mm-hmm. or stay home. Why um, not? Or, Absolutely. Right? Right? Absolutely. I mean, you can do the up. introduction for that one. Can you do the introduction for that one for yeah. us? Can you do that? I only say that because I would love to hear him. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Brene Brown, obviously. Yeah. Um, but on a on a more local level, we've been working with somebody who you actually put on my radar years ago, which who is uh, Jamie Gamble, and he's amazing. Oh, that's a nice idea. Yeah. Nice. Well, we're we're hoping for the big hitters. Ibram and Brene are both on our list. Just by the way. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. I'll add one other actually. So there's a gentleman called Bryant McBride who leads an initiative that's actually called the Carnegie Initiative. Oh, yeah. He's in the States, and um, I think he would probably love it. I can think of many. Marco De Bono at uh, Jumpstart is amazing, and he's so, so supportive of this work. Like, mm. just, you know, on every level. And he's really interesting guy to talk to, really insightful, smart, deep-feeling person. Oh, my God, I could, I could think of so many. Yeah. Well, that's a delicious start. So feel free to make the introductions to any of those people. And uh, we'll... Coming right up. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Carolyn, it's been so good to have you. Just great to talk with you and hear about what you're doing and, and know that you're just learning. And yeah. And just to be in partnership in this way with you. It's nice. It's really great. Thank you. Does this mean we have to hang up? Mm-hmm. It does. Thank you. No. Thank you for inviting me. I loved it. Oh, thank you for coming yeah, on. Thank you. What a delight. Mm-hmm.